Welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, conversations designed to help you as you live, learn, and lead through pain. And now the host of the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, Davey Blackburn. Hello, welcome to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. I'm your host, Davey Blackburn, and joining me are co-host Aubrey Woo! Sampson. Hey, Aubrey. Davey. Hey, everybody. I want to say this is your first official co-hosting, but it's not. I mean, we took we've done some breaks and stuff. We did have you for our third birthday episode. That was your first official that co-hosting. Was- a major first co-hosting, I would just like to point out as well. <laughs> well just you, threw me right in I there. <laughs> you definitely <laughs> did a fantastic job of carrying that conversation and navigating that. Uh, but if, if, you, if you're listening to this and you have not listened to Aubrey's interview that we did a while back on the Nothing Is Wasted podcast, episode 75, you have to go and listen to it. Um, you'll kind of get some more of her backstory and her family, the context that she's in. Yeah. But Aubrey, I, you know... We've kind of talked about this quite a bit, mm-hmm. but I think it's such a God thing, a providential thing that we've yes. gotten connected and you're now um, partnering with us in this capacity. And so I yeah. would love to hear kind of how that journey was for you. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear that. Yeah. What was that like to finally to go, oh, you know, this is why I said yes to the Nothing Is Wasted podcast. Yeah, it's, it is kind of a crazy providential story. I love the way that God works. Um, so I would say a year ago, I started thinking about podcasting as just sort of like a next thing to do. I'm writing, I'm speaking, ministering. Hey, maybe a podcast is something I could do. But I mean, I also realized pretty quickly from my friends that are doing podcasts that um, it could be a full-time job. (laughs) It's a lot of work, yeah. (laughs) What's interesting uh, is you it should be a full-time job, but you usually don't get paid to do it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that many podcasters that are like, that's their full-time job, right? right. But it could be. So I'm I'm also, you know, I'm a mom, I'm a pastor, I'm in grad school. Mm -hmm. Like I can't say to my family, hey, now I'm gonna start a podcast on my own. And also I knew like I mean, I'd have some listeners, certainly, because I've got readers and things like that. But yeah. it, it'd be a lot of work for I, I just didn't know how many people would listen. So yeah, anyway, what would the return be like, you know, especially initially? Exactly. Yeah, building it exactly. is, is of quite a beast. So I felt like God was saying, hey, why don't you pray about or think about joining a podcast that is sort of already like engines on mm. in full throttle? Um, and so I was praying for that for about a year, but also in the back of my head, like no one's going to just want to bring on a random co-host who already (laughs) has a podcast. So I'm sort of praying in faith and praying like, Oh God, you're never going to actually answer this. (laughs) So in the meantime, look at what the Lord is doing It nothing is wasted. You guys have built this incredible ministry. That's not just a podcast, but also has community groups and you're on mission. You care about hope and healing for people that are in seasons of darkness. And that's also a passion of mine and what I write about. And anyway, so I come on as a guest, right? Because of my book, the louder song. And then later I come on as a guest Mm co-host because you guys were filling in some spots and uh i don't was that january maybe yeah it was was earlier this yeah in 2020 for sure yeah january february something like that so it's really fun (laughs) and i texted taylor who is your producer um after and i said i love that so much that was so life-giving that was so energizing if you guys are ever in need of a co-host again, and at the time I'm thinking a guest co-host, right, right. please call me. I want to be the one that you call. <laughs> 
Well, little do I know that your incredible co-host has sort of a season of life change Uh and the Lord kind of calls her to step back and you're on this journey. And it was just like, then I get a call from Davey, I don't know, a month ago, two months ago. (laughs) Hey, would you be interested in doing this? And it was just like an answer to prayer, uh, God's beautiful timing. And then, like I said before, the fact that you guys are not just a podcast, but you're actually living out your mission, like it's an embodied podcast. To me, that felt super important and felt super important to my husband, Kevin, too, that this would be a ministry, not just like a hobby. Yeah, that's great. And so I'm anyway, I'm grateful. I'm excited. I feel like it's a blessing. And anyway, I've you know, it's fun. I feel like there's only good things to look forward to. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember when you, when we finished up that session of doing the guest co-hosting, I looked at Taylor and I was like, she'd be amazing. Oh my goodness. Ah! This would be perfect. She would be a great co-host for this. So we kind of sat on it for a while and prayed about it. And so it absolutely was a God thing. And so we're so thrilled to have you on board. We're so thrilled to be able to do this. And I know that we would have a lot of things that we could talk about because there's so many different avenues that, of experience that we have that are very similar, they're very congruent, yeah. and our hearts, um, you know, you and your husband, me and Christy are very yeah. aligned. And so it's cool just to be able to begin dreaming about introducing more voices, bringing more people into the fold of nothing is wasted. And, and again, as we've expressed, not making this about the Blackburn story, but yeah. making it about so many other people's stories and how we yeah. can, how God wants to use our story to help other people in the midst of their story. That's and right. um, and so we're just thrilled to have you. And we're kicking off with a pretty intense series. Oh man! Here, this I know is you, an incredible series. Yeah, it's going to be. It is. It's an awesome series. It's it's going to really reveal uh, quite a bit of I think just healing um, and 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 breakthroughs of some strongholds within yeah some of our listeners' lives. But this is a series on addiction, and um, yeah, we're just. I love that we're going there, and. Um, like you said, I, I think some things are going to be named that need to be named. Yeah. Some things have been maybe in the secret place that yeah. now listeners are going to be able to say, oh, maybe this is actually something I'm struggling with or my loved one is struggling with. And um, there'll be some, I think some healing's going to take right. place because of it. I'm really excited about who we have on this episode, Seth Haynes, mm-hmm. who I'm a fan of. He's an awesome author and has a great story to yeah. tell. Well, that's one thing that we're seeing as kind of a common thread as we've had these interviews with folks who are struggling through addiction or they're, you know, involved in people's lives who are struggling with addiction is this idea that healing happens in the light. Yeah. And 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 you have to begin to uncover that stuff that stays in as long as something stays in the darkness, it's going to remain festering and rotting and it's going to keep growing and it's going to Right. But when we bring it to light, right? I mean, the way that we receive forgiveness from sins as scripture tells us, right? Confess your sins to God. Yeah. But the way that we receive healing cuz yeah. that's that's like I mean, once you once you step into salvation, there's still a journey for all of us. Oh, seriously. You know? And once you in in order to receive healing, you have to confess to other people and bring it out yeah. into the open and immediately yeah. it loses its power. And yeah, that's what that's we're right. seeing as kind of the common thread. Unfortunately, though, we we are humans and we like to mask things. I think that's true. And one of the things that I was thinking about was, especially as uh, church leaders, yeah. that we yeah. tend to mask things. And you and I have talked about this before, Davey, that um, there are you get to be a private person, right? So you can have a public persona and a private persona, but there are things that I think church leaders need to get better at, especially talking about addiction or being more vulnerable in their own struggles. So Mm -hmm. even if you're not an addict, 
to be able to give permission to those people in your church who are addicts or have maybe like an addictive personality Um, just to name those things and not just name the acceptable ones like Netflix and, and, right. oh, I'm so cute. I'm drinking too much coffee like Lorelai Gilmore, but like right. I'm really struggling with fantasy or I'm really struggling with spending too much. Yep. I'm really sp- struggling with drugs or I don't know, just let's start naming the things that need to be named, like you said, so yep. that they can be brought into the light and people can actually experience true healing yeah. and freedom from shame. Well, like naming it while it's kind of a, a quote unquote pet, or at least that's what our, that's right. what our, our mind tries to convince us that it is. It's like, you know what? This is under control. I got this. It's it handled. Yeah. It's not a full fledged addiction yet. Yeah. So let's, you know, let's just kind of keep that buried. But that again is when that thing is going to grow. And ultimately it's going to turn into this massive beast that rears its yeah. ugly head and destroys you and everybody yeah. else around you. And so what if we got to the place where we were confessing these things early and often it's before good. it grows? You know, here's, here's my bent. Here's my, here's what I recognize about my own personality that I have a, a, a propensity towards. And I want you to keep me accountable and help it from not destroying my life. Yeah. If that could just become a regular yeah. part of the rhythm of what we do as Christians, that'd yeah. be great. Yeah. yeah so Seth's going to talk about some of that stuff in his interview, mm-hmm. which I'm really excited about. Like I said, he's a great author, great guy to learn from. You can find Seth and all of his social stuff at sethhaines.com. And let's go ahead and listen to our interview with Seth. Seth, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Well, man, before we dive into your story, because your story is incredible, and you've just you know released this book uh, called The Book of Waking Up, which in some ways is a follow-up to the first book that, that you wrote, The Coming Clean. I want to talk all about that stuff, but before we dive in to the inspiration behind these books, can you give us a little bit of a picture of your life right now? What is, what is your family like? Where, where do you live? Just kind of tell us who is Seth Haynes. Yeah, so I am a writer and attorney. Um, and communications consultant. I wear a lot of hats these okay. days. It's a little bit confusing. Um, but I co-write uh, with others. I write for myself. Um, I also do communications with um, some marketing agencies. And then I'm also an attorney. So communication is kind of my bag. Wow. Um, I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas, right here in the, uh, the middle of the Ozarks. Um, <laughs> actually, kind of the, that's not really true. It's not the middle of the Ozarks. It's sort of the northwest quadrant of the Ozarks, but it is God's country. You should you come go. visit if you've never been here. Hey, you ever I, been here? I, no, I'm not. Well, I've been through Arkansas. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. So mm. we used to play, you know, we used to play tournaments all around the southeast and stuff. And we never actually landed in Arkansas. We always drove through it for some reason. Yeah, that's so. a bummer because it is a beautiful state. <laughs> At least this side of the state is a beautiful all state. Of my, all of my but friends my, would go hunting. In Arkansas, yeah, yeah. it's like lots of hunting, like wild boar or something, like all kind of razorbacks. Yeah. I guess I mean that's uh, I guess the razorbacks, yeah, yeah, cra- crazy, uh, yeah, wild wild pig, a lot of wild pigs, okay, uh, bear. Now yeah. a lot of people are black bear hunting up here. Um, yeah, lots of hunting. In fact, I was working with a guy yesterday on the storyboard for uh, uh, talking about some bear hunting. So yeah, kind cool. of fun. But uh, my wife is actually from Alabama. She's from Huntsville, really? Alabama. Get out of here. And oh. um, yeah, we've been married now. 20 years uh, in November. We have uh, four kids, all boys, all wow. boys. Wow. <laughs> Oldest is 15. 
my youngest is eight. So um, if I'm not working, if I'm not riding, there's a good chance that I'm hanging out at a basketball gym or out in the woods with some boys or something. So that's awesome. Uh, so yeah, that's that's kind of my life in a nutshell. Your your wife must be really special to be able to handle and and keep up with four boys. Oh, she's amazing. She's amazing. That's awesome. And, uh, and she really she, handle and keep up with. That's the right <laughs> word. She really does all oh, of it. She's gosh. amazing. That's awesome. We have two. One's five, and the other one's three months old. So there's enough of a disparity. We haven't quite, you know, settled into the life of having a, multiple boys in the household yet. You know, and the yes, ramifications yes. of all that. But I'm sure it's coming. Yeah, <laughs> it is coming. It is coming. Get uh, prepare yourself for the um, ER visits because oh, uh, <laughs> those that's a real thing with boys. Oh man, that's awesome. Whether it's by risk or just being blissfully unaware, right? They they yes, are constantly both. hurting themselves. Probably a combination of both. Man. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited about having this conversation with you because you've got quite a story of of some things God has done um, in your life, particularly around the topic of addiction. Um, if if you don't mind, would you just take us back, kind of, to when all of this began to start for you, and uh, kind of walk us through um, the story of, of of you battling an addiction? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I grew up in a Baptist tradition, Southern Baptist tradition. So, if you know anything about mm-hmm. the Southern Baptist tradition. Either uh, you're a teetotaler or you're lying and you, you <laughs> claim to be a teetotaler. So those are kind of like the two, the two versions wow, of uh, being Southern Baptist in the 80s and the 90s. Um, but that was kind of the way I was raised. Um, my parents never really had any stigmas around alcohol. Mm. My, my mom was raised uh, Episcopalian uh, in Louisiana. Um, so she and my dad both had kind of been around alcohol their whole life. So there was no like real stigma around it. And, um, I was around family that drank and things, but just as a family, we just really didn't, um, at least not that much. Yeah. And, and, um, so I, I was like 21 before I really had my first actual full drink. Right. So, um, I had a pretty disciplined life. I had a pretty solid, you know, scriptural biblical upbringing, um, but with that came a lot of the, the sort of legalistic bends mm, towards mm-hmm. things like don't drink and don't smoke and don't do and don't do and don't right. do and yada, yada, yada. Um, so I guess it was probably in, it was after law school. So it had been after 2004 that I entered the practice of law and alcohol became kind of a more of a normal part of my life just mm-hmm. because of client development and, um, things like that. And, and so I began to drink more and more. And, um, I found that I was really good at it. Like, I'm really good at it. Uh, I tell people all the time, like, you know, I always wish that like, it, um, I could do anything as well as Michael Jordan plays basketball. <laughs> like, even if it's just like breathe or something, I think I might almost be there with alcohol. So, um, <laughs> I'm six feet three. Um, most of my, fa- like my entire line is like German and Irish. Yeah. Uh, and so what that means is like genetically I'm predisposed you to be can, a phenomenal you can hold drinker. It. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So I um so I started drinking. I found I had a real propensity for it, but still it was pretty under control. Mm-hmm. Um and then we had three kids. Um and really through the course of my practice, I, I kind of started developing probably what I would call a functional drinking problem. Mm-hmm. Um I was probably drinking three to four drinks a night. Uh, most nights, um, on the weekends, you know, basketball or football games, I would start drinking a little bit early. Um, and so I, I, I had a good working relationship with alcohol. I wasn't yeah. out of control. wasn't getting behind on 
on anything at work. It wasn't affecting my relationships, but it was increasingly becoming a part of my life. And then uh, my youngest son was born in 2011. Is that right? I got to do the math on that. 2011? Yeah. Um, so uh, he, everything was fine when he was first born. He was a normal birth. Um, and then about six months in, um, they noticed, and, and there were some medical complications around why they noticed, but they noticed that he was kind of stagnating in his weight. He wasn't growing mm-hmm. as fast as he should have, either height or weight. Um, and about seven or eight months in, he fell off the growth charts altogether. Wow. And then uh, right before he turned one, so probably 11 months in, um, not only did he start losing weight, um, or not gaining weight, but he started losing weight and then he started throwing up his meals. Um, and so I was actually out of town in business. I was in Atlanta, uh, when they kind of discovered all this and they rushed him to the hospital and I flew in and, you know, kind of made it to the hospital just in time for them to discharge him because locally they couldn't do anything for him. And they decided that he needed to be sent to children's hospital. Mm. So, um, we, we drive over to children's and I remember just sort of the bleakness setting in, you know, for like probably a solid four or five months, you know, I am investing in prayer for him. I'm asking for healing. Um, I had this little group of guys that we were meeting every week and, uh, it was kind of a prayer and Bible study meeting and we were all praying for him. The church was praying for him. Um, and so I just put so much time into prayer. And I remember driving into um, Little Rock that night. And I don't know if you ever heard or remember the, the old Rich Mullins uh, song, The Love of God. Mm-hmm. But it was playing this, this notion about the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God. Yeah. And I was just so angry, um, just thinking, like, wh- why is this happening? And I was sad. And um, what's going to happen? So we check in late that night. And, um, you know, things went from concerning to just freaky. I mean, everything was, uh, it was like walking into an alternative universe. And, um, that night, I mean, as soon as we got there, they began to do tests and are keeping him up to do more tests and their CT scans with contrast and MRIs and x-rays. And, um, and I write about this a little bit in my first book, Coming Clean, just, just how, invasive yeah. it all was and and mm. you know they're they're coming to me and saying we need an extra set of hands to hold him down as we pour this viscous blue goo down him so that we can then take this gigantic you know machine and scan his body against the oh. contrast and so i'm holding down my son on this board as they you know do this and um he's writhing and oh. you know it's just all this stuff where you're like this this shouldn't be happening yeah, yeah. at three in the morning. Like this is insane. And, um, we go through test after test after test. And, uh, there was a moment and I think it was probably about two weeks in when they could not figure out what was going on. Um, and, uh, he had not only, so, so for a while they were tube feeding him and for mm-hmm. a while that was kind of working, Um, but then at some point about two weeks in, like that stopped working, he started throwing up his tube feeds. And so the doctor came in and just said, man, we have no idea what to do. And so we're, um, going to make him comfortable. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those things that, you know what that means. I mean, we've all seen 
enough episodes of VR or whatever, you know, name your doctor show. And, um, and he left and Amber and I started sort of talking through like funeral songs. Mm. And, and there was this moment where I was like, that's not except this is not acceptable. Mm. And so I did two things. One, the first thing I did was I, uh, went out and I grabbed the doctor and I said, I know what you're saying when you say make him comfortable. This is unacceptable. He had actually said, we're going to discharge you and send him home. Oh, man. And then if he if he's still around next week, let's let's reconvene. And I said, we're not being discharged until you figure out what's wrong. Um, and in my mind, I'm thinking if he dies, he's dying here. Right. Um, and uh, and we're, we're, we have to figure it out. So that was the first thing I did. And the second thing I did was I called um, someone I knew who's living in Little Rock. And I said, I don't care how you do it, but bring me some gin. And so she smuggled in an Algene bottle of gin. And, um, you know, there at the hospital, there was uh, not much good about it, but there was one good thing. And it was that they had an ice machine that gave that perfect crush, like Sonic ice, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like the yep. Chick-fil-A ice. Um, it was like the one benefit of the whole thing. And so yeah. I get that Nalgene bottle of gin and I go over to this crushed ice machine and I fill up this big styrofoam cup and then I, I pour gin over the, the ice, no cutter. Um, and I took, uh, just the biggest swig and just kind of decided like at that moment, like I'm not going to feel anymore. Like this is, this is the end of it. Um, and so, um, the, there's some good news. The good news is, um, the, that doctor rotated off the floor and the next day, the doctor who replaced him, uh, said, I mean, I've reviewed the charts. I have no idea what to do, but I do have this one little thing that might work. Mm. And the idea was to drip feed instead of what they call bolus feed, which was give a big shot of food. Mm. The idea was to continuously drip feed and to drip feed him less than he would need to survive on day one and a little bit less than he would need to survive on day two and then what he would need to survive on day three and then slowly increase it and expand his stomach. And he said, I don't know if he has enough time. I don't know if he's going to make it. Um, but like, this is the idea. And, and the good news is it worked. Wow. Um, so slowly we start noticing like, okay, he takes the first day and then he took the second day and then he took the third day and slowly they begin to increase it. And after about a week, they got to the place where, um, they were tube feeding him more than he needed calorically mm -hmm. to survive. And they showed us how to change the tubes and they gave us a pump and they sent us home. Um, and as you can imagine, the next year, I mean, it is full of, yeah. you know, make, you know, I'm working every day and then coming yeah. home and making sure the tubes are run right, making sure the machines are working and wow. making sure we have the right formulas and all these things. And it's super stressful and super painful. Um, and so in that entire season, I'm just going after it. And mm -hmm. I remember, uh, there was this moment, um, we were released right before his birthday. Um, and so there's this moment about three months later, it was in November, early November. And um, if you've ever been to the Ozarks in early November, it's just amazing. I mean, I can't even mm. begin to tell you it's, it's uh, it rivals the Northeast as mm. far as beauty. You know, if, I say often, if you can't see God uh, in the Ozark autumn, then mm. you can't see God. I mean, it's just gorgeous. Lots of maples, lots of golds, lots of oranges. Wow. Um, it, and I remember there was a, a moment when 
that little prayer group had set up a card table in my friend Travis's front yard. And the idea was to sort of pray in this beauty of the, of nature. Um, and I walked out of, I got out of my car and I walked up to his, uh, to the card table and I slammed my hands down and I said, I can't do this anymore. You guys pray for Titus. I quit. Mm -hmm. And I walked and I got in my car and I drove off. And honestly, man, that was kind of it as far as I was concerned with God. Like I didn't want anything to do with, with it. And, and looking back, it wasn't even so much that like I didn't believe yeah. as much as maybe it was like I didn't want to saddle him with the success of failure because we still didn't know if Titus was going to make it. And if he doesn't make it, then like what does that say about God? Yeah. And, and what does that say about me? Um. So yeah, so that was kind of the the backstory of my drinking, and it was that that whole next year that I um, yeah just really gave myself to the bottle instead of to anything spiritual. Wow, you know, you you touched on this thing that so many people battle with and face when it comes to suffering, and that's this idea of numbing, yeah, and just not wanting to feel anymore. Um, you know, we'll we'll. I want to just kind of take a pause because we'll kind of talk through the the journey or the upswing of your story as well. But why would you say in your experience that can be so dangerous as you've now looked back on that season where you, that was your mindset of, I don't want to yeah. feel anymore. I just want to numb. Why is that philosophy, that mindset so dangerous to us? Yeah. Well, two things. I think one, um, I always like to be clear about this because I think it is important. Like, I don't think God was surprised when men figured out how to make alcohol. Mm. Right. And there is a thing about making Mary, you mm. know, like, um, uh, ancient writers, ancient, uh, Christian writers, the scriptures, like the, like we, we have ample evidence that there's a reason that God created alcohol. Mm. So I'm not saying that like, um, it's always wrong to have a drink or to even numb out a little bit. But what I would say is when your reflex becomes reach for the bottle, right? Mm -hmm. When your reflex becomes to numb out, um, then it's a, a real problem because um, as far as I can see, and as far as I can read in some of the great writers, C.S. Lewis talks about this mm -hmm. to some degree. I talk about this in my last book, uh, the newest book. Um, but I, it's my estimation that pain is supposed to point us to the areas that we need healing. Mm. Right. And so I know, and I know this from my story, we'll talk about this a little bit more as we go. And as I talk about the therapy component, but there was a unique pain point in my life that was much deeper than just my son was sick, yeah. you know? And if I had paid attention to that pain, uh, I might've short circuited about a year and a half of really bad spiritual formation and I might have been able to experience something more like the presence of God in the middle of that really terrible experience if I had just listened to my pain, but instead I numbed it. Yeah. You know, I dulled my inner ear uh, to the voice of pain and the, and the place it was trying to point me to, to say, like, this is where you need healing. Wow. That's so good. Pain is supposed to point us to the areas we need healing. We, we talk mm -hmm. about often that, that pain it can be an invitation from God. Uh, the emotions we experience an invitation from God into these spaces where he wants to meet us in an even deeper place. And, um, I love that. I mean, essentially what you're saying is that it can short circuit some things. If we, if we decide to escape that pain or numb that pain or, you know, like you said, perpetually our reflex reflex yeah. becomes 
reaching for that, uh, that coping addiction or the coping mechanism. Um, so when did it, when did all of a sudden this thing kind of come to a head for you? I mean, you're like full, full fledged diving into this addiction to alcohol. I don't want to feel it. Um, when did the rubber meet the road? How did that kind of rock bottom moment happen for you? Yeah. So I would, I had been invited to this conference down in Austin, uh, Texas. And, um, I remember, so it was kind of interesting the way it worked out. My wife had been down there, uh, the week before, and then we were actually, I I was going down for a different conference the next weekend. And so we were actually passing each other, um, coming and going. And, um, uh, and so the night before I left, um, I had just gotten ripped and, I had emptied some bottles and it was so bad, in fact, that the next morning I was supposed to leave at eight, but I had to wait until 10, um, until the closest liquor store opened up so that I could go get some bottles to replace the bottles that I had emptied wow. so that when she came home, she wouldn't you know, freak yeah. out. And, mm. and then I took all the empty bottles from the week that she was out and I chunked them in a dumpster at my work because again, I didn't want to throw them in my garbage can. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't want her to see and so I went down to um, Austin, and and uh, we we like I said we passed coming and going. We spent the night um, down there together, and then she came back home. And then I was actually sharing a house with uh, I think twelve friends. Like we all take had all taken down this Airbnb. And um, at the time, I wasn't really being honest with my drinking problem. Amber knew. I mean, she had asked me, "Do you have a problem? Like, do you need to stop? Do you need to slow down?" Um, several several times. Um, but this crew wasn't really, they didn't really mm. know. And, and the truth is like, we all drank really hard together. Um, and it was this sort of Christian uh, social justice type of conference. And I was there as the attorney to talk about some orphan care issues. Um, and there were people there to talk about human trafficking and um, all, you know, all sorts of just different things. At the time, interestingly, none of us were talking about soul care, which mm. we all are now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now that's the hot topic. <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> A little late, but, um, (laughs) but so while we were in this house, like it was like party central and it was a good time. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I remember, um, the first night being there, the first night after Amber left being there and I remember drinking, uh, a lot Mm -hmm. and I was drinking beer. Um, and then I was kind of sneaking back and taking some shots and I was really trying to keep like that perfect buzz going, mm-hmm. um, but to also try to just give the experience that or the, the perception to everyone else that I was only drinking beer. And mm-hmm. so I was actually trying to count the beers I was drinking publicly, so that if anyone else in the room was count had been counting, they would they would you know not think I was drunk too, right. which is insane because why would anybody have been counting the number of beers I was well, drinking? I was going to ask you, do you, do you find that that's the case? Like, is that kind of one of those key indicators for people in regards to, you know, I, I asked that question from a perspective of like, if someone, if you have someone in your life that you're kind of looking and going, I, do I need to, do I need to step in? Maybe not full fledged intervention, but do I need to like have a conversation? Is that one of those things that typically happens where you're beginning to, I don't know, in some ways, like you, you'll talk about the, like what you said, you'll, you'll offer the information to the, to the group, but you're only offering half the information because you really only want yeah. them to, it's just this like hiding, covering type. Yeah. 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 I think there's a couple, there are a couple lessons to learn from that too. It's like one is, um, if, if you're hiding your consumption in any way, like if you're going to the liquor store to replace the bottles, if you're mm. throwing away your bottles in a dumpster, um, if you're trying to count, 
because you think other people are watching you. If you just think other people are watching you drink mm. because you're concerned they're going to think you're drinking too much, like these are all indicators that probably there's something deeper going on. And mm. it may not mean that you have a drinking problem, but it probably means that you need to take a pretty hard pause and ask some tough questions. Yeah. Um, and I remember that night even, uh, one of the women there um, who's phenomenal, she said, are you sure you need to keep drinking? And, and I was like, yeah. And I actually later told her, thank you. And she didn't even remember saying it. Mm. Um, so, but, but it was like, everything was pointing to me to say like, you have a problem, you have a problem, you have a problem. And I just wasn't listening, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the following night was kind of the, the, the final. So, so there was that night and then I presented the next day in the afternoon um, and then I had no other obligations for the conference other than to just be there. So, um, I just was like, all bets off. Like mm -hmm. I can do whatever I want. I have a house, I have my friends, we're all partying or whatever. And, um, that next night I drank until four in the morning and I knew it was bad because I started drinking tequila and that is another sign. Mm -hmm. If you resort to tequila, man, <laughs> you should probably talk to somebody about that. Um, <laughs> So I remember at about 12 o'clock, maybe, maybe it was one o'clock. I snuck out with uh, this bottle of tequila that my friend had brought. And he said, I see that you're taking my bottle of tequila out there. And I was like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. Um, and he was very gracious about it. Um, so I went out and we stayed up till four with a couple of friends drinking. Um, and then the next morning I woke up and it was kind of that, like, you know, the, the, you may not know this, but it was like that moment of like the hangover where like the whole room is like swimming, mm. but like there's no water anywhere. And right. so that's weird. You know, like the walls are liquid. <laughs> um, and I felt like I was on a boat and um, so take my shower and I get out. I'm supposed to be at the conference in like 10 minutes. And I had a friend call and she said, hey, you're not here. Do you want me to come get you? Um, and I said, yeah. And she said, do you want me to bring you some breakfast tacos? Cause she could totally hear that I mm. was hurting. And I said, yes, please. The more grease, the better. And so she did, <laughs> she picks me up. Um, she takes me to the venue and I was a little bit late and I was standing in the, um, uh, front lobby and I was talking to this humanitarian photographer. I'll never forget it because, um, he had a little bit of liquor on his breath. I had to have reeked of it. Um, and it was just one of those like pain meets pain mm -hmm. moments, you know? Yeah. And we're in this lobby and we're sort of talking about some things and, um, the door opens and on the other side of the door, um, walks in the silhouette. And I remember the, the, the way the light was coming in and the, you know, I was hung over. So it was like a thousand shards of light, mm -hmm. like breaking my brain apart is how it felt. Um, and then when the door shuts and the silhouette sort of comes into view, it's this uh, woman I knew named Heather. I walked over to Heather and Heather's backstory is really interesting um, because she was from Minnesota and she had a drinking problem. Um, I had, you know, been in recovery for a couple of years, maybe. Um, I had no idea she had moved to Austin and mm. she had just like shown up because she had heard that I was going to be there and we knew each other. And, um, so I see her and the minute I see her, it was like, I heard this voice saying like, you can take care of this now or it's going to get really bad. Mm. Like, this is your chance. Like take care of it or don't. It's up to you. Wow. 
but the ramifications of the don't are going to be really bad. So I walk across um, uh, to Heather and I say to her, not good morning, which is what normal people say when they see someone <laughs> in the morning. Um, I said, how did you know you had a drinking problem? And the minute I said it, I was like, Ooh, come backwards. Yeah. <laughs> it's out there now. And yeah. yeah. And she said, um, she just looked at me in the kindest way. And she said, you know, don't you? Hmm. And, um, from that moment on for the rest of the day, like she walked with me and talked with me and said, like, here are the things you need to look for. Hmm. And I was, you know, saying things like, well, I, I've never hit my wife, you know? And she's like, well, you know, that doesn't matter, right? Well, it's not getting in the way of my work, although it kind of probably was mm -hmm. at that time. And she said, you know, that doesn't matter, right? Said, well, I've never had a DUI. Well, you know, that doesn't matter, right? And so she started just like kind of graciously walking me through like, are you counting your drinks? Mm -hmm. You know, are you losing track of your counting of your drinks? Um, are you hiding bottles? Are you, and she just started nailing me. Like, are you telling mm. people that you can quit whenever you want to? Has your wife asked you whether you have a drinking problem or other people in your lives, um, compartmentalized in your drinking? So that's another mm. one uh, that I did. Um, I would, I had a bottle of whiskey in my, uh, drawer. Uh, now I keep something totally different in my office drawer. Since I'm in my office, I'll show you. Now it's just like the, it's a piece of chocolate. It's <laughs> not sponsored. Nice. I don't think. But, <laughs> no, not sponsored. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I keep chocolate in my in my top drawer now. But then it was a bottle of whiskey, and mm. so every day at three o'clock, um, you know, I'd I'd pour myself a drink or two, and then I would go uh, to happy hour with clients, you know, mm. um, and so they didn't know I had had anything to drink. Um, my clients. I would drink with them, have a drink or two with them. And then I would go home and I would walk in and immediately pour a gin and tonic so that after I had that first drink, Amber wouldn't, I mean, it would just smell like gin. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and then Amber and I would have a drink together um, or two or three, depending. And, um, and so I was really compartmentalizing and segmenting my drinking and, and Heather just said, you know, like that's a problem. Right. Mm. Um, so, I went back to the house after we had spent some time that day and I, um, I went to a friend who was staying in the house with me as a pastor and who had not, was not an over drinker is not an over drinker. And, um, I just said, I think I have a drinking problem. And I remember he grabbed my phone, uh, and said, okay, do you want me to call Amber? Or are you going to do it? Mm. <laughs> and that was the moment when it got real, real. Yeah. Um, so I called Amber and I told her, like, I think I have a drinking problem and I think all the alcohol needs to be gone when I come home. Mm. Um, and I drove home that next day. And the first thing I did when I got home was, was called a therapist. Mm. Wow. Our addiction series and Seth's story in particular is such a great reminder about how admitting our need for help and getting that help is so crucial for a successful recovery of any kind. Help in the form of Christian counseling has been so valuable for me as I learned to navigate the loss of my late wife, Amanda, and since just to navigate life in general. Christy and I have decided in the wake of COVID-19 to try another type of counseling that doesn't involve in-person meetings. So we've partnered with an incredible online worldwide organization who is sponsoring this podcast, Faithful Counseling. 
They provide virtual counseling with licensed therapists who are certified by their state's board to provide therapy and counseling. Faithful Counseling is designed as a solution for people seeking traditional mental health counseling who would prefer hearing from the perspective of a Christian. If you are seeking a mental health professional who is a practicing believer, Faithful Counseling may be a great option for you. Once you are matched with a counselor, in 24 hours or less, you can connect with them anytime via your computer, tablet, or mobile device, through video calls, phone calls, or even text messaging. They also have weekly group in our sessions where members can learn in a group environment with a counselor about various topics that we all face. Just to clarify, Faithful Counseling is not a crisis line, but it can be an incredible resource during your healing journey. Faithful Counseling costs $65 per week and financial aid is available to those who qualify. You can apply for that aid during the signup process. To learn more, go to faithfulcounseling.com slash nothing is wasted. If you sign up through that link, you will receive 10% off your first month of counseling for being a part of the Nothing Is Wasted family. Again, that link is faithfulcounseling.com slash nothing is wasted. And now back to my conversation with Seth. How did your wife respond when, when you drove home? What was that like? Yeah. So very graciously, Mm. I mean, she was like, okay, you know, yeah, I'm here. I'll be here when you get here. We can talk about it. Um, uh, there was no hint of judgment. There was no hint of anger. I later found out that she was extremely angry, but she was extremely angry because we had always dreamed of going to Italy together and having a Mm. wine tour. And she was like, you stole my wine tour from me. (laughs) Um, she wouldn't tell me that for like six months, but she did eventually tell me that. Uh, That's right. Honest confession. uh, It's a good place to, good place to uh, find healing. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, um, but yeah, man, it was all grace. It was all gracious. And Mm. in fact, um, you know, I was a worship leader in a church and, I tell this story in Coming Clean. I had was leading worship, and I was uh, really hungover one Easter while I was leading worship. Mm. Um, it was the Easter after uh, uh, Titus had been released from the hospital. And at the end, uh, and I was singing this uh, John Mark McMillan song, and in the song, there's this, this line where he says, the man Jesus Christ laid death in his grave, and it's mm-hmm. really this high moment. And as I was singing this, I'm like, I just about passed out because I was so hungover and it was so high. Mm. And this super charismatic couple came to me at the end and um, she just said, oh, you're so anointed. You were so anointed. And I remember looking at her and being like, no, I didn't say this, but I was thinking, no, I'm really, really hungover. Like those are two very different things. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, uh. So, so. Um, so anyway, yeah, but, but even like when I went to the guys at church and I said, um, my, my, one of my best friends was, was sort of, uh, over the music ministry. And I just said, I I can't, I can't hide this. I need to tell you this thing. And they could have asked me to step away from leading worship and they didn't. Mm. Um, they, they knew I was kind of doing the work in therapy. They knew I was doing some, some personal healing work. They knew my story. They Mm. had empathy on what, what, what we were going through as a family and, um, and yeah, as a result of that, like I was met with nothing mm. but grace. And I think that was super helpful in my own experience and in my own, uh, sort of journey into what approximated sobriety. Yeah. Wow. You know, I'm not sure if, if your experience is like this, but I feel like that, um, 
certain nuances of pain attract those nuances of pain in the sense that, you know, um, I meet people all the time who lost their spouse. It just, you know, once that happens in your life, it's kind of a gravitational pull toward those kinds of stories. Those kinds of people come and kind of congregate around you, flock around you. I'm sure you've kind of found that once you begin this journey on sobriety, that you found a lot of people who had also been struggling with addiction, or maybe were also struggling with addiction. I'm curious to know what your perspective is on um, the church and addiction, the church and sobriety, how prevalent you've found that it is. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of, a lot of insight that you may ha- have into that too. And even just a culture that typically hides, <laughs> yeah. right? Covers because it's not yeah. supposed to be, especially you've grown up in the Southern Baptist uh, church, you know, like it's not at all acceptable. And so, but how, how many people have you found are dealing with it? How yeah, like is this? Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, well, it's a it's a massive conversation today. I mean, there are, there yeah. are co- there there are huge conversations at a macro level where churches are beginning to talk through the lifting, you know, abstinence from their policies and stuff like that. Just because social drinking is a major norm now, right? Everybody's everybody's drinking. Everybody's, and so of course that then is going to lead to people wrestling through the lines of how much am yeah. I addict? Am I, how much am I dependent on this? How much am I not? How do I? Where's the yeah. line? You know, and it, it's a different line for everybody. It's a different conversation for everybody. But, totally. you know, how, how do you, I suppose what I'm asking is like, um, what do you see in regards to the, the conversation the church should be having? What, yeah. in regards to alcohol, what, what would you say prophetically your voice would be to speak into that? Yeah, I would say two things. One, um, it, it's not about doing or not doing. Like we need to, we need to like get rid of that conversation. Um, and we need to stop prescribing, uh, addiction to things like alcohol and Mm. drugs and porn. Like we need to open up the conversation. So number one is open up the conversation in ways that aren't, we're not talking about like bright line tests or two drinks is okay, but three isn't. Mm. And, uh, like, let's get over those conversations, right? And 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 realize this isn't also just about like alcohol, porn, heroin, mm. uh, whatever. It's about other things too, like food and shopping and mm. sex and um, you know, gambling, myriad of other things. So that's one. That's one thing is that we need to expand the conversation. Um, but in the expansion of the conversation, I think really what I think the church needs to hear is it's time to wake up to the purpose of the things to which we are addicted. Mm. Okay. And here's what I mean by that. Like, again, I've said this before earlier, like I don't think alcohol is a bad thing, right? I don't think it is innately negative. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's innately positive necessarily. Right. I do think it was created for a purpose. Mm. Right. And I think, Let's use wine wine as an example, um, and I'll give you two examples that I think are, are really important. Like when we are uh, celebrating life mm. together, it's maybe your birthday, or maybe it's uh, someone's promotion at work, or uh, you know any type of celebration. Like it is an enjoyable experience to share 
uh, to toast somebody with a mm-hmm. glass of wine or a glass of champagne or to raise a beer to them. Like these are the things that like bring a certain amount of life and, and joy. It's something that we have mm-hmm. forever gathered around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't even think it's any surprise that when we look at the scriptures and we look at the way Jesus used wine, that we see those signs of life in his ministry, right? Yeah, we see right. at the wedding of Cana, um, his mom comes to him and says, hey, we're out of wine. This is a celebration of life. Can we fix this problem? And he takes what is uh, God-given water, and Mm -hmm. he makes it what is God-given. He sacramentally transforms it into wine to show the people at the wedding the goodness of God in the land of the living. Mm -hmm. The wine was a a sign that God is here with you, and he wants to make your life pleasurable, Mm -hmm. right? In the same way, um, when Jesus is at the Last Supper, he takes the thing that is created, wine, and he said, this is my blood. Mm-hmm. Take and drink it. Like, this thing that is created is meant to pull you deeper into my life. Like That is mm-hmm. the purpose of the created thing. So in the realm of addiction, what, what I really want the church to hear is wake up to this create, to this fact that the created things are sacramental. They're meant to bring us pleasure, and they're meant to draw us deeper into an experience of God. Mm-hmm. So um, I've already explained wine. Let's talk about um, uh, sex is a good one, right? So, so God says, hey, I've created people. You all need to help me procreate and also create create more people. Mm. And so here's the gift of sex. And as you create with me, I'm going to give you pleasure in this, Mm -hmm. in this thing, right? Like this pleasure isn't just for the sake of pleasure. It's actually to show you like you get to partner with me in pleasure to continue to create the, the expansion of mankind, the expansion of the world, right? Uh, Food is another good example. So, um, you have been created, you need to eat. Mm -hmm. If you don't eat, you will die. Mm -hmm. And so here's food. And when you eat this food, when you take this bread, you will have pleasure Mm -hmm. in the eating. And the reason I'm doing this is to show you how good I am. I want you to enjoy life. Right. Right. And so here's the created thing to point you to me, to show you how much I love you, that I would want you to enjoy life. That's great. Yeah. But the, the, the problem is that we, we treat all of those created things, whether it's wine or food or sex, um, as ends unto themselves, mm, right? It's right. drinking for the sake of the pleasure. It's eating for the sake of the pleasure. It's having sex for the sake of the pleasure, mm-hmm. um, which has all kinds of permutations, right? Porn right. Uh, use is the one that we most often talk about. But, um, but, but when we do those things, we're actually attaching to the created thing instead of attaching to the creator. And that's the conversation that the church needs Mm. to be having is not do or don't do drink or don't drink, you know, have sex or don't have sex, eat or don't eat. Um, But it's how do we use these created things in ways that really bring us to and attach us to God in deeper ways Mm, so that the conversation about addiction really becomes a conversation about attachment to God. Yeah. That's so good. And about, about your, about your soul, it, mm-hmm. it becomes a conversation about how is your soul healthy and is it whole yeah. and what does that look like? And what are the, what are the spaces that are feeling empty and how are we trying to fill those spaces with created, created things yeah. rather than yeah. the creator? That's so good. You began this journey then 
of sobriety and you, you know, you went, I, I don't know what kind of therapy you did and that kind of stuff, but can you walk us a little bit through that journey and what God began to teach you in, uh, in regards to that, in regards to the kind of the underpinnings of why you slipped into this addiction? Yeah. Yeah. So when I got home uh, from Austin, I called this therapist. I said, I don't know if I need to go to AA. I mean, I don't know what to do. And and he said, well, don't go to AA yet because I know enough of your story to know that that I probably if you go looking for your higher power and you don't find him, mm-hmm. that that's going to be a real problem. Mm-hmm. So why don't you – because my pain was a deep spiritual pain. Like God right. wasn't answering my prayer. Right. And so – um, so he said, why don't you come in and, and do some therapy and we'll, we'll see where we need to go. And I, I had my first session and in my first session, it was really funny. I was super disorganized in my thoughts. Um, and he said, you're a writer. I need you to start going home and writing because I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and so he said, like, write this down in a way that like, will help me be able to like read it. I don't even know if you ever end up reading any of it until, uh, much later, but it did help me. Yeah. It helped me. It helped me come in the next week and be able to like talk to him coherently. Um, and at the same time, also Heather, this, this woman, um, had said, why don't you, cause I had told her I, I was a writer and I was concerned. I'd never write another word like mm-hmm. sober. Right. And she said, well, why don't you try to journal your way through, um, this process of sobriety, mm-hmm. um, as creatively as you know, how to prove that the spirit is actually going to speak in new ways to you mm-hmm. now that you're not drunk. And to see if your writing doesn't get better. She said, I think it'll get better. Wow. Um, and so that's what I did. So I set out to really journey, journal um, my experience. That journal ended up becoming the first book, uh, Coming mm. Clean, which I never intended to publish, which is a whole nother story. Wow. But um, uh, as I was journaling through and as I was going through therapy, um, what I began to see is like this pain of my son's lack of healing was actually a pain that had haunted me from the time that I was about six years old. Um, and I was a very severe asthmatic and, uh, my mom was kind of, she came to faith, uh, (laughs) she came to faith through, um, uh, like the, what do they call it? The charismatic renewal Mm -hmm. in the Episcopal and Catholic church. She was Episcopalian. (laughs) And so this is how just a strange concept to think about. (laughs) Yeah. It was really bizarre. Like the confluence of, yeah, it was really bizarre. (laughs) Um, so she had come to faith in that way. And so, um, she was kind of a hippie. Uh, mm. so she had literally tried everything, uh, to, to help me with my asthma. We'd gone to, um, uh, allergist, we'd gone to asthmatic specialist. We went to, she took me to, I didn't even know this until later. She took me to this, uh, what they called an iridologist who is some mm. hippie who's supposed to like, look at your irises and tell you what to eat to help with, uh, it's, it's bizarre. <laughs> Um, but we moved to Arkansas and, uh, from Texas, my asthma got really bad and she was kind of at wit's end Mm. and, uh, had heard, I guess that there was this, um, faith healing service at a local church. I still drive by it every time I go visit my parents, which is kind of odd. Mm. Um, but so, you know, kind of out of options options. And she thought, well, I'll, I'll take you, uh, to go see this faith healer. And, um, and I went to the faith healer and he makes this comment, you know, if you believe enough, mm. uh, then God will heal you of your asthma. And he, he takes the big jug of piggly wiggly oil and puts it on his thumb and anoints me and then says the prayer and, and then says, you know, do you believe that you were healed? And you know, you're a kid. What are you, 
supposed to say, right. oh yeah, right. I did do, sir, because you're an old man and right. I'm a young kid. Um, and, I, you know, I, I, I don't know whether I actually believed. What I do know is that I had significant amount of faith at six years mm-hmm. old, seven years old. And, um, and like two weeks later, maybe three weeks later, I had a severe asthma attack. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at the time, I probably didn't really connect the dots. But I mean, even early in my 20s, mm-hmm. I was talking about how um, I had this like cessationist view of God doing any kind of miracles because of my experiences mm-hmm. as a kid. And I would tell people that like, I prayed for healing from my asthma and he didn't show up, you know. Um, and so I carried that sort of subtext story. Right all through my twenties and thirties. And then, so when Titus got sick, it was like that story was now like being lived out in real time as an adult with my son. And I just remember praying like even God, take me, Mm -hmm. don't take him, take me, um, before we went to the hospital. And so I I was just really uh, wrecked by this notion that as a child, Mm -hmm. when I needed healing, I didn't get it. Um, and uh, all through my twenties and thirties, when I needed to see healing, it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And then now here I am with my son and I'm praying for healing and it doesn't happen. And it became really apparent to me through the process of therapy. And the therapist was a master. I mean, he's the one that helped me connect the dots Mm -hmm. that like really what I had always wrestled with was the pain of an absent God Mm -hmm. that every time I needed him to show up in a particular way, he did not show up. So no matter what other experiences I had, no matter how mystical they were, um, it didn't matter to me yeah. because I was looking for a very particular insertion of the God story into my life. And that insertion was always missing. Wow. Um, and so he really helped me to like wrestle with that pain and understand that pain. And even then to go back to my history and say like the way to begin to unravel that is to begin the practice of active forgiveness, mm. um, of this man that I didn't even know he was. I don't, I don't know if I could ever even find him. Um, uh, but I, I do know that um, f- for me, the process of like seeing God come back around was just me saying, okay, he was doing the best he knew how. Wow. You're talking about forgiveness uh, of this pastor. That, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like he was doing the best he knew how. He didn't mean to wreck my faith. Yeah. He didn't. He was doing what he was taught. Um, it didn't work. But man, he's just a human. And mm-hmm. so let that go. Let the pain mm-hmm. of that go. Understand that God maybe has a deeper and a bigger purpose for the pain of my own life, for the pain of my son's life, mm. and actively begin to explore what that pain looks like, absent this like hatred of this uh, faith healing pastor back from when I was a kid. Um, and so I did that for 90 days. For 90 days, I walked through that situation um, and wow. the connection back to my son with this therapist. And um, at the end of 90 days, yeah, something like a lightness or a, a expression that, oh, yeah, I really... I really actually can connect with God had come back. Wow. What was the experience of that, that like spiritual awakening or the beginning to have the spiritual awakening and lightning of going, Oh, this is the pain that I've really been experiencing. How did that then connect itself to um, the physical getting over or recovering from the addiction to alcohol? You know, was it a process? Was it a journey? Was it like a, Oh man, all of a sudden, wow, I no longer, yeah, yeah. how did that play out? 
Yeah, no, I actually had a, um, a lady, um, a interviewer graciously asked me like, what was your epiphanal moment when you just walked away and it was easy? And I was like, you know, it doesn't work that way. Right? Was she baiting you with that um, question? <laughs> I, I think she was actually serious. And that was the disconcerting thing about it. I think that's the way a lot of people in faith yeah, circles think true. is like, you give your life to Jesus, yeah. you get out of hell for free and then everything's right. hooky dory and great. And we always, fine. we and, always say that we want God to work in poof, but most often he works in process. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's a really great way to put it. And, um, and that's what it was for me too. So, um, the process, I mean, the first three weeks was hell. I mean, there's no other way around mm-hmm. it to, to put it like, um, I don't know that I necessarily experienced like sh- the shakes. Um, again, my tolerance is really high and you know, I don't know where I was on that spectrum. I did experience that sort of like nerves on fire, like almost mm. where you feel like you can hear the electrical wires outside, mm. like every height sense. And it's you feel crazy. Wow. Um, and for three weeks, I definitely felt that, um, about three weeks in, I started noticing maybe two weeks and I can't remember, but I started noticing that I could do things on the guitar that I hadn't been able to do in five years. Um, and I was actually thinking about the fretboard in ways that were different than I had thought about for five years. And I'm not a great guitar player, but um, but it was just like things were starting to kind of unlock. Mm. Um, and as I got um, farther and farther away from drinking, things got a little clearer every day. Now, that's not to say that there weren't like days when I would come home and say, Amber, I need you to come over here and like hold me because yeah. I want to drink really badly. Um, but for the most part, um, that kind of cleared up after 90 days. And And, you know, that's what a lot of the research and science now shows is that that really, if you're going to kick a habit, um, an addictive habit like alcohol, like after about 90 to 120 days, mm. your brain really does start to rewire itself, mm. um, which is should be hopeful for people. Right. Like get a good community of support, get good therapy, get around people who love you and will help, help you stay accountable. And then, you know, you have this, this uh, window that if you can make it, like you can make it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, after that 120 days really is when for me it was finally like, okay, I can be at a party and if people around me know that I'm not drinking, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Like I can make it through a two hour party, you know? Um, cause as an attorney, like you had to go to those things. Yeah, right? right. So, um, so I had a group of people even in the legal field who knew and who held me accountable in those things. Wow. And, um, about, where, where it was really hard again was right at about the one year mark because mm-hmm. you come up on this place at the one year mark where like, that's your goal. Mm-hmm. But then after that, after you breach one year, like there's no other goal. Yeah. Right. Like, the rest of the, what is it forever? That's not a good goal. You yeah. know, um, <laughs> it's not measurable, you right, know, forever's exactly. not measurable. <laughs> so, um, so that was a really, that was a tipping point for me to a real struggle wow. where in the, in my own process where I really, really wanted to burn it down and start over. Mm. Um, and I had a good friend come to me, pastor, his name's Wynn Collier. Um, it's in Charlottesville, Virginia, amazing dude. And he just said like, I think, and I told him like, I really want to burn it down and start over. And he said, I think you're putting your identity in the wrong place. I think mm. you're putting your identity in alcoholic, um, which I'd never really used that word to describe myself. Not really. I think I'd used it maybe once in my journal. Mm. I wasn't still really sure about the nomenclature. Um, and he said, but anyway, he said, um, I think what you need to put your identity in is, and I can't remember the phrase he used, but it was something like rescued or, mm. uh, put your, I mean, it was an, a Christ centered identity. Yeah, you know? wow. 
Um, and, and I think for me, that was like a shifting point where I was like, Oh yeah, I don't always have to fight the bottle. Mm. Like that can be, that can be behind me. Yeah. That's okay. And I can move forward into something different. That's good. Um, and that was a pretty freeing moment, but yeah, it was definitely like a one year process. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I find that that's true for a lot of people on like grief journeys, loss, that kind of stuff too, that one year hits and it's like this simultaneous is like, wow, I made it to one year, but then it's also this major letdown that can often send totally. you into this vortex because you're anticipating, you're anticipating, you're working toward it. There's a goal. Let me just, I got to survive one year. Like we made it a year, but then after that, it's like, wait, I've got to, I have to live with this. Right. Was that the only thing that kind of helped you to, to reframe it was just this, like this identity shifting thing or was there other, did you put other like steps in place, goals in place, that kind of a thing to I, some, I did, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't put other goals and steps in place. Here's what I did though. And this was super helpful too. Um, like I'd never heard that before. Mm. So I was, um, I, I was on a retreat with Wynn in Colorado. And the interesting thing is, is that, um, I had to cancel my plane and rent a car to drive back because there was a storm coming off the range and it was going to snow us and I was going to miss my plane. Um, and we knew it and I got out ahead of it enough to get this car. And so I was telling when, like, now I have this 13 hour trip, mm. I'm going to have to spend the night in Kansas and that's where I want to do it. Cause I'll be right. alone, you know? Um, so anyway, so he kind of gives me this pep talk and then we sort of talk it out even as I'm in the rental car some more. And, um, and I called Heather, uh, the, the woman that I had, mm -hmm. uh, that had helped me. And, and she said, would it be helpful to tell you that like, this is every addict ever, mm. like everyone who deals with any sort of grief cycle or dependency cycle, like when you hit the one year mark, like you want to burn it down and start over. Wow. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, man, like I hit my anniversary and it was like the next day wow. I was ready to go, you know? Um, and she said, I went to AA and in AA, everyone in the room was like, yeah, yeah, welcome to what the experience is. So I think for me, it was super helpful just to know that like this You're is the alone. human experience. Yeah. yeah. You wow. know, which is, you know, one of the things we often say is that's like the ploy of the enemy constantly totally. is to get us to think that we're the only one dealing with this, that we're alone, that and if he can get us isolated, then, you know, he can lead our life into devastation. But yeah. to be able to have this community to say, yep. I'm with you, man. And, and we'll just kind of, we'll, we'll battle this thing together. Yeah. Seth, you, you, I, I bet you have, cause everybody has different definitions for addiction, how to define what addiction would be. I bet you've got an interesting definition for it. One that I'd be really curious to hear. Like, how do you, how do you say, okay, this is what falls under the umbrella of addiction for me. Yeah. Now. Yeah. So I want to explain addiction. Um, through literary mechanism. Hmm. All right. <laughs> I'm a writer. Right. Hey, I'm, I'm, let's, let's roll. I'm there. Let's go. <laughs> uh, um, so I was really um, tentative with the language of addiction for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's super helpful. Um, I think the church uses it often. I write about this in the book of waking up. The, the church uses it often as um, either a way to castigate people or push them to the side. Mm -hmm. Like you're an addict. So go to CR like mm -hmm. I don't have to go to CR or AA, um, but you you go over there and do your church thing here, and we'll go over here and we'll do it because we we kind of have it together. And wow. and they're always talking about what like gambling, sex, eating mm -hmm. disorders, the big alcohol, ones, yeah, mm -hmm. drugs, yeah, the big things. Um, 
So that's one way they use it. Or the other way they use it is sort of a kitschy way to identify with people. Mm -hmm. So I, I once heard a story of a pastor who talked about his addiction and he had this whole run up to it. Um, and then when it was time for him to like sort of break his addiction, it was an addiction to ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries. And I just remember <laughs> thinking, man, you have just alienated and hurt a lot of people, you know? Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it was just like this like kitschy little identification yeah. Yeah, thing. Let me try know? to identify with you guys. Yeah. 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 So it was really, so, so I was really uncomfortable and had been really uncomfortable with the language of addiction. So I started, um, and there was some stuff before this that led me to this language, but, um, there had been some things that were pointing me in the direction of using the language of attachment instead Mm -hmm. of addiction, like the things we attach ourselves to. Um, and, and we can go into that more later, but that's a little bit of like, uh, the writings of, of like Augustine, mm-hmm. um, and Aquinas, uh, and Ignatius of Loyola, like mm-hmm. the old right. writers of the faith who would talk about it in terms of attachment. But then I was actually doing research. Um, and I found out that the word addiction actually, um, was derived from this idea of, of, um, it was a Roman a Roman bonds servant mm. type of uh, use was was for the word. Hmm. So, in other words, like um, if if you were if I was your slave, um, you might have lent me um, some of money, fifty bucks, and you say, "Hey, Seth, man, uh, you are now in my service until you pay back that fifty bucks." Mm. So everything you do, like, "Hey, go get me my coffee." There's a dollar off the fifty bucks, you know, so forth right. and so on. It's like um, a bond between us. And that bond was called an addict, an addiction. So the first time that was used was in the sense of you are uh, enslaved or attached to uh, something else, someone else to whom you owe a debt. Wow. And you're going to give everything that you have in the service of that debt. You are the addict bonded, right? Wow. And, um, And so... That was the original term for the word, uh, the, the original word. And then uh, William Shakespeare used that in some new and creative ways to talk about things like alcohol and drugs and those other mm-hmm. things. So the first time that we see the term addiction being used outside of a, a bond slave mm-hmm. context is in this literary, con- the Shakespearean literary context. And so um, what I like to describe addiction as is um, the things like – like if you will leverage your life for a thing, if you will give your life for a thing, if you will follow a thing, even when it's unhealthy, if you're attached to a thing, even when it's unhealthy, mm. then that's an addiction. Wow. Right? That's an attachment yep. Yep. to the thing. So if you have uh, an eating disorder, either way, that can be an attachment to the thing, an addiction. Um, if you uh, have a drinking problem, if you, uh, for instance, there's someone I know who struggles with shopping Mm. and she stays up late at night and she click and click and click and click and click and she'll have all these packages delivered to her door within a couple of days and then she'll feel guilty and send them all back. Mm. But guess what happens a week later? Click, 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 just like every other computer right. addict we know, uh, right? Right. So I think what I would say is that any time that we are attached to something um, to the extent that it like motivates our behavior, it drives us, it pulls us along with mm. it, 
then we can say we're attached. We can say we are addicted to that thing. Wow. Um, so in the example that I told you earlier with the pastor, he says he's addicted to 30 for mm-hmm. 30 episodes. My guess is that he could have used a much more vulnerable mm-hmm. and real example in his own life. And yeah. my guess is that he could have said, there's probably something, you know, yeah. when I'm, when I'm hurting, when I'm alone, I turn to food, mm. you know, because that's what so many of us do. Or I turn to social media mm. when I feel alone, I turn right. to social media. I mean, how many of us do that? Right. Right. And then, you know, that brings in the conversation that, you know, oftentimes the trigger of these addictions, these things that we turn to is again, back to the beginning of our conversation, pain, some kind of a pain yeah. point, some kind of yeah. a, you know, whether it's loneliness, whether it's heartache, whether it's grief, whether it's, you know, insecurity, whatever it is, it's a pain point that we're unsettled about inside of us that causes us to, yeah. to lean into it. Hmm. Yeah. So there's this writer um, named Gabor Mate. He's a doctor and he works with um, heroin addicts at uh, the Portland Hotel, which is in Vancouver. I always have to think that through because that's very interesting. Portland Hotel in Vancouver. But anyway, (laughs) uh, he wrote this book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And what he says about addiction when he works with heroin addicts is um, the question that we should be asking is not why the addiction. The question we should be asking is why the pain? Wow. Because he says yeah. behind every addiction is this like surfeit of pain. It's yeah. this this churning of pain. And he was actually really um, clarifying in my early thoughts on addiction. I mean, this was probably in the first, you know, definitely in the first year yeah. and maybe in the first six months. But as I would read his work and as I would listen to him talk, like he was talking about his own addiction. He was a compulsive classical music buyer hmm. and, and he couldn't stop. Like he would go to this little record store in Vancouver and he would like, buy out their stock of classical records. Um, and it didn't matter how much he had. It didn't matter whether his wife asked him to stop. Like he kept buying these things compulsively right. and he would justify it by saying like, well, there's nothing wrong with classical music. Yeah. Well, that's true. Mm. But his real addiction was uh, his addiction to spending money mm. to try to solve the pain that maybe he didn't have enough. Wow. You know, this underlying right. pain that he just hadn't dealt with. And he was very open about it. Um, and in that way, that that's like a real and more vulnerable, it, it seems silly, but the way he talks about the pain that drove that, yeah. I mean, that's a vulnerable confession, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Man, Seth, this is, this has been awesome. You know, you, you talk a lot about this in the, in the first book in coming clean, this new book though, that, that you've just released the book of waking up. What is your hope with this book? What's, what are you wanting the, the world to to understand as you're releasing that book? I always, I think it's interesting. I think books are, are always have like a subtext. They're always, yeah, right. <laughs> there's like the stated thing that they're about, then there's the thing under the thing. Um, so Which coming you gotta, clean. You, know, you got a subtitle right there, right? So it's like, uh, right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Experiencing the divine yeah. love that reorders life. Love it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but underneath that, um, what, what do you really, what do you really want? <laughs> the world yeah, 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 yeah. So, so yeah. So, coming clean was really a book about my son. Mm-hmm, I mean, right. you know, it's this is about alcohol, but it's really about my son. Um, this book again is about addiction um, and attachment, but what it's really about is the sacramental life. And mm-hmm. and what I want my readers to understand is that all things were created by God and ordered by God for a particular purpose, mm-hmm. and that purpose is to draw us into deeper attachment to Him. That's great. So um, Ignatius would say, St. Ignatius would have said, uh, when you're at the table um, and you're surrounded with wine and meat and bread, 
imagine Jesus and the disciples at the table with you mm. and eat as he would eat and drink as he would drink. Wow. Um, and in that way, experience Christ at the table with you. Like give thanks the way he would give thanks, eat as he would eat, mm. um, laugh as he would laugh as you experience these things together. Don't overdo it because he wouldn't overdo it, yeah, you know? Um, and in this way, like really unite yourself with Christ um, and the great cloud of witnesses. And I think that's what I, my hope is for this book is that, that, that people really would wake up mm. and they would wake up and say, okay, uh, I've been meant to be attached to God, but I have attached myself to other things mm. as God, whether it's whatever, pick your poison, video yeah. gaming, Twitter, booze, boobs, I don't care. Mm. Um, I've attached those things to myself, to those things, like as if they could cure my pain. Yeah. But really, there's only one thing that can cure my pain. That's and so right. I want to reorder my attachments, attach myself first to God, and then use everything else only as it would help me uh, attach more and, and greater to him. And that's, that's the, really, it's the Ignatian concept of the sacramental life. And it's, wow. I think, the, the pure way of following the divine love. That's awesome. Man, that's awesome. Well, I want to encourage everybody to pick up this book. Pick up both of them. Read them in order. That's my encouragement. Go ahead and read the first one. Read the second one then because it, it kind of gives you the flow, the order of what uh, Seth's journey is. But man, thank you so much, Seth, for joining us. Thanks for sharing with our listeners. I know that this has impacted. It's really it's really enlightened me even into the underpinnings of addiction. And I know it's impacted so many of our listeners too. So thanks for, for your time, man. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a, it was a good time. It was fun. Okay, that was a great, meaningful episode. Yeah. I loved it. Wow. Um, if this has meant something to you, listeners, or maybe another episode has meant something to you, be sure to go on iTunes and rate and review us. I actually have a review that I want to read. Oh, good. I love when you it's read really these. It's really good. Well, this is the first time but, you've read them. <gasps> this but is I love so when exciting. we this read This is a them. moment. Yeah, this is, this is a really good one. Here we go. The Nothing is Wasted podcast is my favorite podcast. The stories and testimonies from the guests that Davey has on the show bring unique perspectives to pain and learning to live and learn through pain. I'm thankful for the comfort this podcast has provided for me over the past three years. The stories alongside Davey's insights have significantly helped me journey through the pain and losses in my life, pressing forward in hope for the glory of God and kingdom building. Thanks, Davey, Christy, and the team. You are a light for Jesus. That's a wow. good review right there. That is really good. Wow. Yeah, so be sure to go and rate and review the podcast. And while you're at iTunes, check out anything that Sleeping at Last does. We want to thank him for providing all the music for the Nothing is Wasted podcast. You can follow him at Sleeping at Last. You can also follow us at Nothing is Wasted Ministries on Instagram. And then you can follow me at Davey Blackburn and you can follow Aubrey at Samp A-U-B-S-A-M-P, Samp on Instagram. And uh, next week, we're going to continue our addiction series. We have uh, an incredible interview with Stephen Arterburn. It's going to be a good one. That's so good. And I, from what I understand, Aubrey, you, his wife was like a, like a mentor, a writing mentor for you, right? His, someone he mentored was. So we have a nice oh, connection. Okay. Someone yeah. he mentored. Okay. So yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of a connection right there. Yeah, we'll there. talk. Yeah. So why don't you listen to this clip from my conversation with Steve Arterburn? When I was four, 
um, I had very strict uh, Southern Baptist parents um, as I grew up. Like my parents were so strict when they started uh, putting Cokes in cans, we weren't allowed to drink Cokes out of a can because they were afraid somebody might think that we were drinking beer out of a can. <laughs> well, we were drinking beer anyway, but, uh, <laughs> but it made them feel better to not have us drink canned Cokes. But for some reason at four, my parents didn't think it was a problem for me to go into my grandfather's office that was covered with centerfolds and um, just all sorts of pornography. And I was exposed to pornography. And so I was kind of uh, introduced to women as objects. 